Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest. It is Joe Kramer. You might know Joe from composing the scores to Jack Reacher and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. But his latest film is, surprisingly, a children's fantasy film called Emily and the Magical Journey. It's pretty refreshing, actually, because it kind of avoids the very epic, serious soundscapes and scores that so many modern fantasy films have. And it's much more intimate and lighthearted, which, being a film uh, directed primarily at children, makes sense. This one was a while in the making. Joe and I took quite a while to schedule it, but I was so glad that we finally managed to get it done. Now, the purpose of this interview was to talk about Emily and the Magical Journey, but we really only get to it in the last maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Before then, we talk about a lot of the various work that Joe's been doing, some of his other films, the audio dramas he's doing, TV series, and we go on all sorts of music and film-related tangents. And you might expect this because this is, I think, my longest recorded interview. We cover a lot of things, and it was really a blast. And as I mentioned, this interview is coming out outside of the normal release schedule. I'll have another one coming out the following Sunday, and then we'll be back on the normal schedule. I know I know I've said that before, but hopefully I can stick to it this time. I'm a little less overloaded with recorded interviews now. You can find more about Joe on social media or on his website, and you can do the same with me. I recommend checking out his score and all of his other scores as well, and they're all really good. Now sit back, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Joe, I'm, I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? I've been good. I've been busy, but I'm glad to be able to have a minute now to just have a conversation about music instead <laughs> of worrying about writing it. So, Yeah, hopefully it gets your mind off things a little bit. So busy, what are some of the things that you've been working on? I know you basically have your fingers dipped in every possible <laughs> you know, music media sphere. Well, you know, I do try to keep busy, hopefully busy enough, not too busy. I will say it's been pretty wall-to-wall the past couple months. I just did a score for a film called Old Man by a director named Lucky McKee. Stephen Lang is the star, and it's really good. It was made during the lockdown, and uh, it just it came out great. And I'm really excited about the score. It's kind of a departure for me as a composer. We finished the mix. I'm not sure when the movie's coming out. I don't know what the release plans are yet. As with everything right now, it's all kind of up in the air. So I finished that about a month ago, and then I'm working on audio drama, kind of like old-fashioned radio serials for a company in England that manages a bunch of sort of classic English licenses like Doctor Who, Blake Seven, a bunch of Jerry Anderson stuff like Thunderbirds. And I do music for them, and I also supervise some project sound design for them. So it's been a busy couple of months working on Old Man and a bunch of these audio drama projects for them that have all sort of fallen back to back, including a classic thing called Box of Delights, which is a Christmas time story for kids that's a very popular in, in the UK. So yeah, that's sort of a, I'm, you can tell I'm a little frazzled still, I'm a little fried because my answers kind of wander around, but yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot to keep track of. But I'll, my, my wife is actually an English immigrant, so I'll have to ask her about Box of Delights. Yeah, she might know it. I mean, it's sort of a Chronicles of Narnia, Mary Poppins, Harry Potter kind of like magical world that sort of exists alongside our own. It was written in the 30s, I think, and they did a BBC radio version, probably in the 40s or 50s, somewhere in there, and then they did a TV version in the 80s. So she might know it. All right. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll ask her after this. Cool. <laughs> and so some of those projects, first off, with Old Man, is that something that's still a little too early and you can't talk much of it? Or can you give a, a preview of what the film's about and what your, what your score is like, especially because you mentioned that it's a departure from some of the things you normally do? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about the plot of the movie, um, but it's a very good character work by Stephen Lang, who was in um, Avatar, is probably his, the biggest movie he was in. And I have to say, when I saw the film the first time, I was really knocked out by his performance. It was not at all what I was expecting, especially given the kind of character he plays in Avatar. The principal setting of the film is a, a cabin 
in the woods, a kind of decrepit cabin in the Smoky Mountains. And the score was designed to help sort of evoke that setting. And so the entire score was done with piano and cello only. And everything you hear is either a live piano, a live cello, or a sampled piano or sampled cello manipulated in some way. So I have sustained things that sound sort of like strings or electronic kind of moans or wails, but these are all done by manipulating piano sounds or cello sounds. And also all the percussion was created either by like knocking on a cello or knocking on the piano, things like that. So it was like very experimental for me. It still sort of hangs on thematic ideas in terms of the composition, but the way that I realized the composition, the way that I had the composition performed or constructed electronically was a departure from my preferred method of standing in front of an orchestra and conducting. So, you know, it was, um, it was interesting. And there's been such an influx of different ways of composing from like what Hilder did on Chernobyl or what Michael Levi is doing. You know, there's these different approaches to the work. And it was interesting. It was fun for me to step back from my usual working method and try this other approach. Because of that, and I think you know, mentioning the, the orchestral side of things, you know, those are the types of scores that people are going to most know you for. So it might be, for the listener, a bit of a surprise too. But was that something that you've always been interested in doing, going a, a little out of the norm, a little more experimental? Well, sure. I mean, back when I first started making music for movies, I was still in high school and a friend of mine made films on Super 8. And it was very much, you know, like Mr. Spock says, like stone knives and bearskins, you know, when he's trying to build a tricorder in 1930s. I had a cassette deck, a four-track cassette recorder, and the film was being edited and mixed on a Super 8 projector that had like recording capability. We had no method of synchronization except sort of luck timing it. We had no way to really do overdubs or multi-track on the projector. Through a sort of fluke in the electronics, you could, uh, when you've shot the film, the dialogue was recorded to like a magnetic strip on the actual film. And then this uh, projector, you could erase that and put new sound on. But the erase head was faulty so that when you put new sound on, you could still hear the old sound underneath it. And so that was how we were able to sort of add music and sound effects to these eight millimeter movies. There were no computers. There were no um, MIDI or time code kind of synchronization possibilities. I would look at the scene and I had no craft. I had no understanding of like counting frames or making timing notes or anything like that. I would look at the scene, sort of get a feel for it, write a piece of music for it. And then with the director, I would sort of hit play on the four track when he told me to, or I would have him do it or whatever. And we just sort of would eyeball it. In those days, I was forced to be experimental because there really wasn't the mechanism yet for doing orchestral mock-ups. I was still in high school, so I hadn't really studied orchestration or counterpoint or done any real analysis of orchestral writing on a sort of granular level. So it was all instinctive and it was all experimental. And it was very much, you know, the vocabulary that I had, which was a rock piano player, a Beatles fan who, you know, also loved John Williams and, and Jerry Goldsmith, but didn't really understand yet how that stuff worked. And in a way, Old Man was kind of a return to that thinking of sort of like, forget all the craft of orchestration and just you sort of in my headspace, put myself back in that more experimental frame of mind. That's super interesting. I love how it's kind of returning back to the beginning. And that was back, that first one, I think you were, what, like 15? And that was, uh, the director was Scott Storm, right? Wow, yeah, you've done your research. Yeah, it was 1986, 87. And it was um, a filmmaker named Scott Storm, who I still work with today. We did an animated film a few years ago together. He did the animation, I did the music, and he's animating a new film now. And I've already done some stuff for that, for like the Kickstarter campaign and pre-release, um, you know, promotional stuff. It's all a continuum and it's all connected. And it's been, it's very interesting. Well, that's super cool. And I, I do love hearing about the DIY types of things. You know, I, one of the other genres of music I like listening to is like a lot of Eastern European and like Soviet era new wave and post-punk. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty niche, right? There were guys in the 80s and like Yugoslavia who didn't have any equipment except 
random pieces like that. And I'll be honest, like, I don't fully understand how it actually worked. But right. just being able to, like, being, you know, 15, 18 and being like, you know what, I want to make music and I don't have the, the proper equipment for it, but I'm going to figure out how I can with what I've got. I love that. I find it so cool. It's so inventive. Yeah, I think a lot of, like, the 80s hip-hop also kind of grew out of that. Yeah. You know, guys in their living room or their bedroom making hip-hop records with whatever they could get their hands on. Um, your comment about, you know, Eastern Europe and such reminds me of a project I worked on called Comrade Detective. This project was, like, one of the most bizarro concepts I'd ever been involved in. It's a comedy show, but it's played very straight. The concept is that in the 80s, the communist government of Romania created a cop show using all of the cliches of American cop shows to promote the communist agenda to the population of Romania. And within the show, Channing Tatum talks about how he saw this show at his grandmother's house as a kid or something like that, and that he spent his whole life trying to find this show because it sort of vanished. And he finally found the videotapes of the show like in a box under a desk or in some basement somewhere in Romania. And he brought it to America and had it dubbed into English and put on Amazon. Now, of course, that's all fabricated. That's all made up, but it puts the show in this sort of pseudo reality. And it's filled with genuine electronic music made in that time used as source music. And it's got that exactly what you're talking about, that quality of like, made with whatever they could get their hands on and sort of the American or, or English sort of techno pop aesthetic filtered through this communist oppressed voice struggling for freedom. So if, you, uh, if you're so inclined, it's on Amazon Prime. It's called Comrade Detective. I, I was going to say, that's like a perfect plug for it because, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's like perfect for the weird stuff that I'm into. So, yeah, I'm like definitely going to check that out. For me as a composer, it was interesting because what I had to do is pretend I was a Romanian composer in the early 80s, finally getting a chance to write like some American cop show music. I was almost an actor as a composer. And so that's really cool because Christopher Willis did something a little similar with the death of Stalin a couple of years ago where he's pretending to be a 1930s, 40s Soviet era Russian composer too. That has to be really challenging almost being an actor as well. How did you get into the headspace of making, it's not even an homage, like almost the Romanian version of that American detective music? Right. Well, I got into movies first, obviously, like as a little kid who loved watching movies and then approaching movies first as an actor. So the way I ended up scoring that movie for Scott when I was 15 is that I was in plays in my school and he saw me in one of these plays and cast me in his movie. So I was acting in movies and I also had this love of music and my father was a musician and we had this four track. We had a recording studio in our house, a little hobby recording studio. And so I said to Scott early in the shoot, I said, you know, what do you do for music in your movies? And he explained, you know, I either use like needle drops from Tangerine Dream Records or, you know, the instrumental parts of rock songs. And I said, well, you know, my dad's a musician. I'm a musician. I've got this studio. Maybe I could do music for your movie for this movie that I'm, I'm acting in. Through the years, I continued to act in movies when people asked me to. It was during my senior year in high school, I was an intern at a theater in New York State, and I would audition for these plays, and I, would, and I kept not getting the parts because I was too tall or I was too young, and I just thought, you know what? Acting sucks as a career because there's like so many factors that you, are, you have no control over that can dictate whether you get work or not. I also had some skill as a musician and some talent there that I felt like, at least with that, it doesn't really matter what I look like necessarily. You know, if Meatloaf can be a rock star, maybe <laughs> I can. Maybe I don't have to worry about being too tall or too, too old or too young. But throughout the years, I continued to act in movies when I was asked to. So like my friend David Hayter, who's most famous, I think, for probably being the voice of Snake in the Metal Gear Solid games, Solid Snake. But he also wrote X-Men and he wrote the movie X-Men and he wrote X2. And, you know, he's, he's had a career as a Hollywood writer. He's also directed things. He wrote Watchmen. And there's a video on my YouTube channel. He had directed a scene from Watchmen to try to get 
the job directing the film. This was before Snyder was even involved. And I did the music for that. He made a short film, David, called Chasm. And I was the, it was me and one other guy. We were the lead actors in it. It was a two, two person short film. This is all to say that I've had some experience getting into character and performing as a character and some of the exercises like that Stanislavski had in terms of method acting and technical aspects of acting from like more of the British school of, of acting. And, you know, I didn't necessarily sit down and write a biography of the composer I was portraying in Comrade Detective, but I think I had enough experience as an actor to imagine being that a composer in that situation in a way it was kind of like what I went through in real life on Mission Impossible and that I was finally able to work with a 90 piece orchestra at Abbey Road at writing action music, which is something I'd been wanting to do my whole career and had never had a chance to do. And so this was a similar kind of thing in that regard. That was a long answer to a short question, but there you go. <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting and it informs things really well. I guess with that background in the understanding of some of the more technical aspects of acting. As someone who definitely works a lot more in thematic scoring, does the understanding of, of actors and acting inform the way that you approach scoring as well? Sure. I think that my personal opinion is that the most effective actors tap into an honest emotion. They are able to convey that emotion to the audience. And the actors, I think, that are the most um, or the least regarded, we'll put it that way, the actors that people probably get the least uh, think are the cheesiest actors or the least effective actors are those who you can tell they're sort of going through the motions and they don't really kind of get what they're doing. You know what I mean? They're sort of posing and, and pretending in a way that doesn't feel genuine. It's when you can sort of see that honesty in a performance, I think, that audiences react to. You know, whatever exercises I was able to to learn or do as an actor, I think that ability to connect to emotion is important in any kind of artistic endeavor, whether it's painting or acting or composing or conducting or being in a band. If you're in a band and you're just bored with the music, the audience knows, you know what I mean? Billy Joel once talked about how he just, he was doing a concert he was in the middle of the song just the way you are and he started thinking about like if the mini bar in the hotel room had any good beer in it and like what he was going to have for dinner and he realized he had completely vanished from the song it was just literally like a robot going through the motions and he said right it's off the set list and he's never done it since because he's just like the audience paid too much money and went through too much trouble to be here for me to phone it in when i watch a movie i'm very conscious of sort of where i'm at as an audience member in my emotional reaction to that film or my emotional connection to that film. And then I try to sort of keep track of that. I make a mental note of all this and try to reconnect to that when I'm writing the music. And so I'll try to put myself in that sort of emotional state. If we, again, to compare it to acting, it's probably a sort of method composing, but there is a technical aspect to it in terms of like, I know all these sort of musical you know, I've studied the psychology of music and I know all these kind of theories and I have my own theories and these, I don't want to call them tricks, but they're like things you can do as a composer to generate certain emotions in an audience. And so I know that certain instruments playing certain kinds of melodies in certain registers will create a certain feeling in the listener. It's, it's really about getting to emotional honesty in whatever aspect of, of artistry you're dealing with. I imagine that getting that emotional honesty in film music has to be very difficult. And like that line is really great because there's certainly films that I've watched or scores that I've heard on their own where you're listening and you go, okay, it's obvious that the composer in the film is trying to elicit a particular emotion, but it lacks the honesty. And it's like, I know what you're trying to do, and it's but it's so obvious that... It, it doesn't quite work. There are a lot of factors that your comment raises, a lot of things about art and business and show business that your comment raises. For one thing, you know, we sort of forget this, but it's really hard to make a movie. It's really hard to get 200 people and you stand on 
in some location and you shoot a scene little tiny bits at a time. You know what I mean? It's not like a, a play where you sort of get that momentum going and in two hours, you know, you've got two hours to, to sustain that emotional arc and then you're done with it and that it can sort of feed on itself as it goes along. With a movie, you're sort of trying to maintain a sense of continuity over thousands of little fragments. And that's for everybody involved, for the sound guy, for the costume designer, for the set designer, so that a film is such a hodgepodge quilt of tiny moments. It's amazing, really, when you think about it, that it has any sense of continuity at all, because it's such a, an illusion of continuity. That said, it's, uh, how do I put this? So many movies don't achieve what they set out to achieve without a lot of help from all the different departments. If you have Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson doing an amazing scene on a stage and you hold up your iPhone and you film that, that's going to be a captivating performance because they're in the moment doing it. They're feeding off each other and they've probably rehearsed it a lot and they're doing it. By the same token, if you just try to film me and you know a friend of mine having a conversation with an iPhone like a movie and then cut that together, you may be dealing with an entirely different set of challenges to make that engaging. The first being I'm not Anthony Hopkins and I'm not that kind I'm not that good of an actor. The second being that filming two people on a stage with an iPhone, the audience makes all sorts of um, accommodations for that. Whereas seeing me filmed on an iPhone trying to make a movie with angles and shots, you know, we have a different expectation for what that should be. Anyway, this all comes back to then a director puts a movie together and they start going, you know what? I didn't get what I needed there. I need the music and the sound to help me fix this moment that wasn't quite right. I could, I did the best, we all did the best we could, but we didn't quite reach the finish line there. And I need to, the music to help get me there. So that's one aspect of it. And so that may be one reason why the music is feeling a little dishonest, because what it's really doing is trying to elicit an emotional response that everybody wanted to be there, but couldn't quite achieve. The second thing I think is that there are a lot of people now who are making movies and scoring movies. It's a very dense community. It's a very well-populated community of filmmakers, writers, directors, composers, visual effects people, sound people. There are so many people now. And there's so many things being made to fill up Netflix and Amazon and YouTube and Hulu and Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and Peacock and everything. Everybody and their uncle has a streaming network now and their own YouTube channel and Vimeo and TikTok and everything. People are creating content ad nauseum. And, you know, there's a great leveling of the playing field with the emergence of computer editing for video, computer DAWs for music. But just because you own a typewriter doesn't mean you're a great novelist. And that includes me. You know what I mean? Just because I have access to this musical equipment and opportunities doesn't make me a great composer. If my music has been effective in films and has given people some kind of an emotional reaction, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I try not to take it for granted. But one thing I've worked very hard at is developing a sophisticated vocabulary to get at that emotional expression. And I do feel like there are a lot of composers who have not developed an emotional language, a, a musical vocabulary for the conveyance of emotion. And for them, it's like the best they can do is a sort of D minor with a solo piano, with a sustained string chord. That's why we sort of find a lot of these cliches. It's because they're very easy to do. But the third thing I'll say is that some of it's a stylistic comfort zone for everyone. And this sort of goes back to a theory I've had for a while, which is that someone like Steven Spielberg learned to make movies on Super 8 with silent film. And he would make, you know, he loved war films growing up and he would make his own war films in the desert in Arizona with the kids who lived on his block. And you can see clips from these on the, you know, the uh, special features of Saving Private Ryan. And he's got a, a 10 year old kid in, or, you know, 14 year old kid in blue jeans and a green t shirt and like a plastic helmet running through the desert in Arizona, pretending it's, you know, the South Pacific. There's a big suspension of disbelief that you have to accept to buy just that image. 
And so to help that, he would then pick up the orchestral soundtrack to these movies, Hollywood movies, and then play them over his stereo while he showed the silent movie. And so he got very used to the concept that big music makes his movie look and feel bigger. So as he came into show business to make into the professional realm and started making films, he had this filmmaker sensibility and vocabulary that was not afraid of big music that was emotional and had epic scope and scale. And the other thing was that he never had any illusion that those Super 8 movies could actually be picked up by a distributor and sold or distributed in theaters. In the 70s, John Cassavetes started making independent films and getting those released. And they were films about Jenna Rollins, you know, walking around New York City. And they were personal dramas and they weren't World War II epics, I'll admit that. But they had very small scores because... Cassavetes had to find a composer that he could afford, and that composer had to be able to make a score that he could, he or she could afford to make. As a result, they were small scores. And then in the 80s, Steven Soderbergh made Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Well, to get this movie released, it had to have a score that had to be made for the film. And who did he know? Well, you know, there was not a lot of money. There were not a lot of connections because he wasn't an established director. So he asked a guy who lived down the hall from him in college, Cliff Martinez to do the score. And Cliff Martinez was a keyboard player in a rock band. Now I'm not knocking Cliff Martinez. I used, the music for that film was really effective, but it was definitely of a certain kind of vocabulary that was not what John Williams did or Jerry Goldsmith did or Elmer Bernstein or uh, even like David Shire. Cliff Martinez was a rock musician who played keyboard in a band. The sort of runaway success of Sex, Lies, and Videotape created this whole field of filmmaking for filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez and Ed Burns and you know even like eventually like Brian Singer and uh, the film festival filmmaker who makes their own film and gets it scored by somebody they know when they're still not part of the established Hollywood community and generally the people they get are like I was when I was 15. They haven't necessarily studied the craft. They haven't developed a sophisticated musical vocabulary and they don't have the resources to use an orchestra. And so what you end up with are filmmakers whose voice as a musical voice as a filmmaker is the synth score with a rock music vocabulary. And that is what has led us to where we are now, where I think there are a handful of filmmakers who are comfortable with big, bold orchestral scores, but most of them want sort of drony, moody, scores that sound like keyboard solos from prog rock records you know what i mean it's it's rock music sometimes it's rock music performed by a live orchestra but it's you know it's still done like rock music the percussion section is like a drum set the horns are like a lead singer and the strings are like the keyboards and rhythm guitars and stuff it's not like what williams and goldsmith and even like Silvestri or even what elfman developed where it's trying to write orchestral music that is conceived orchestrally. Again, a long answer to a short question. <laughs> but then you imagine with, and so many people I talk to point to not just like the cycles that film music goes through, but just how it, it has different eons. So then you imagine that at some point too, you're going to get another generation of filmmakers, presumably, who are going to have a comfort in, in something else. And the, the big band stuff, maybe, you know, maybe it comes back or maybe there is something totally different. Yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, I people have been telling me since Way of the Gun in 2000 that like, oh yeah, orchestral scoring, the kind of orchestral scoring you do is making a comeback. And yet every time I do one of these movies and then it's crickets, you know what I mean? So, you know, and I'm not complaining. Listen, I, I grew up in upstate New York. I don't come from a showbiz family. I never thought I'd actually work in showbiz necessarily. And I had a chance to, you know, score a Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. And I got to work at Abbey Road and I, you know, if I could go back in time and t tell 12 year old me, that's what I would do. And even if I only got to do it once, I'd be like, that's amazing. When I say things like that, I'm not complaining, but it is true. You know, people think, oh, you know, you do a Mission Impossible movie, you're set. You don't have to worry about getting another job for the rest of your life, but it's not true. And it's not true for anybody. Um, I do, you know, people talk about the cyclical nature of things and things make a comeback. And I, you know, you might be right. I, I, I tend to think that what happens is, what's happened is that the internet, really, more than anything else, I think, it's created outlets for such a wide variety of interests that everything is diversified so much now that the kind of global, universal, not fame, but 
we'll call it fame for now, that a band like the Beatles could have in the 60s. I don't know if that could ever happen again, because uh, when the Beatles became famous, you know, there was like two TV stations in England and three radio stations, and there were three TV networks in America. There weren't websites with 10,000 followers for each band. You know what I mean? It was such a small industry. And the Beatles were, were such a departure. The mechanisms in place were not there to promote more than a few things at a time. Now, there's so many different kinds of music. There's so many different kinds of movies. There's so many different places where movies can be, can be shown or seen or enjoyed. I'm not sure that we're going to see something, even something like Star Wars in 77 or Michael Jackson in the 80s. I don't know if that kind of thing is possible ever again with the way things keep branching out and diversifying in the media consumption arena, if you will. There's, I guess, two things for that. One is, it's funny, because earlier today, I'm I'm in Chicago, and a friend of mine and I were looking at the, the Lollapalooza lineup, and him and I are both like big into music, but we're looking through it, and we're like, wow, even the headliners, we don't know who, like, we've never heard of most of these, but these are bands where I'm sure if you go on Spotify, like, they have... 5 million monthly listeners. So bands that in the grand scheme of things are really popular. And yet you're right. You can be a relatively big band now and yet be completely unheard of in a different group of people. And I just always find that so interesting. And so there is the downside that, yeah, you probably never have someone like the Beatles ever again, at least like not that we can consider. I mean like Beatlemania. Right, right, right. Yeah. Not, not like, not the actual band. Right. But then at the same time, it's it's really nice, you know, like if you have a more uh, obscure taste, there's there's stuff for that, too. I, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying I don't know if it's possible for there to be like any one thing that everybody loves ever again. You know what I mean? There's always going to be that. Per- and you know what? There always was that person. I remember when Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. There was that one kid who sat in the back of the classroom going, it sucked, man. Ewoks are dumb. And the rest of us were like, you're crazy, man. It's Star Wars, you know, because we were kids still. Well, now what's happened is that one kid has a YouTube channel and he has 10,000 followers who are all like, Star Wars sucks now, man. And while there was always that one person that had to go against the grain, now that person has a loudspeaker. You know, there were probably people when the Beatles came out who were like, I hate that crap, man. But nobody listened to them and they didn't have a TV show or a YouTube channel or anything like that. So that voice has been forgotten now in the 50 years since Beatlemania. You know, I wasn't a huge Michael Jackson fan when Thriller came out. You know, I mean, I liked it, but I wasn't like, oh, Michael Jackson. But I remember it was like everybody liked that album. Like, even if you didn't love it, you liked it. And I can't think of an album that could come out today. You know, for everybody who thinks Billie Eilish is great, there's people who hate it. Or, you know, One Direction. They were like a big fad, but they weren't Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's also interesting with, like, specifically in popularity of film composers, too, where you have John Williams and you have Hans Zimmer, who are, like, just these two massive names. And then then there is just this immense landscape of, like, really good composers that scored a ton of big projects that aren't even close to that same level of public popularity and it's so that's something that I've always just found really interesting and I'm I'm wondering you know at this point in the next few years if there's going to be a new wave that like rises to that public mainstream recognition I think one of the worst things to happen to film music is the emergence of the celebrity composer hmm when I was interested in film composing, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston from 89 to 93. And when I went there, I went there hoping to be like a Paul McCartney kind of songwriter, you know, member of a band, lead singer, songwriter. And it was while I was there that I discovered they had a film scoring program. And I had done all this work in high school with Scott. I had never, I was really, I guess, intimidated by the craft of someone like Williams or Goldsmith that I could never achieve that. And so it was when I saw these film scoring programs that I realized, wait, maybe I can do that. And as much as acting depended on what you looked like and what your, how tall you were, or whether you had light hair or dark hair, I recognized that even, even though I said something about meatloaf before, like, you know, rock stars have a certain look. And I thought, do I really want to get in a van and drive up and down the East Coast playing frat parties for five years to try to make it as a rock star? Maybe this is a way that I could find musical fulfillment, artistic 
fulfillment, but also make a living. And maybe I could actually do it. Maybe I could sit down and do the homework and learn how to orchestrate and conduct and write and all that stuff. And when I did that, yeah, Williams was famous. Mostly, I think, because he was the conductor of the Boston Pops. Hmm. If he hadn't become the conductor of the Boston Pops, I'm not sure that his sort of celebrity status would have been the same. But even then, as the conductor of the Boston Pops, he was not a rock star. But something emerged and... My own personal take is that it was really sort of an agenda that Hans Zimmer had, which is to be famous and be a rock star. And it's no coincidence that, you know, he's at he's at movie film music concerts playing electric guitar in the front and center of the stage. Or Brian Tyler goes and plays the drums in a, rock, in a film music concert. You know, these are very much rock star type moves to each his own. Go for it. But to me, that's that is that is symptomatic, for lack of a better word of a different sensibility about why one is scoring movies than someone like John Williams, who comes out in his tuxedo and conducts his music and is soft-spoken and doesn't sit down and play electric guitar. John Williams is a concert class piano player. I've almost never seen him play piano in any of his concerts. I know in the pops, he would do it occasionally, but whenever I see him conduct, he conducts. He doesn't feel this sort of compelling need to show off as a, as a performer. Same thing with Lalo Schifrin, same thing with Jerry Goldsmith, same thing with David Shire. I mean, I Shire did play some piano at a concert in the World Soundtrack Awards for the score he did for the conversation, but he was also just as happy to get up and conduct. You know, Terrence Blanchard will play trumpet when he does his scores live. So there is, you know, a performance instinct. But I do think there's a real difference between the kind of celebrity a lot of film composers are chasing and the kind of celebrity that Goldsmith or John Williams had. I mean, in 1992, I remember going to like a family reunion picnic kind of thing one summer and talking to some of my cousins and explaining like, yeah, I'm studying music for film and I want to write movie scores. And they were like, oh, yeah, right. I guess movies do have music in them, don't they? <laughs> like the whole concept to them was like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. And, you know, they're just ordinary people. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know how many ordinary people really knew John Williams' name or, well, I put him aside because of the pops, but how many people in 1980s suburbia knew who Jerry Goldsmith was? How many people really cared? You know what I mean? The same people who probably follow some of the, the C-list bands on the Lollapalooza roster, those kind of people are the people who knew what Jerry Golds, who Jerry Goldsmith was. I was a nerd and a geek and a loser at school and in high grade school and high school because I liked Star Wars and I listened to film. I was a weirdo because I listened to Doctor Who music on my Walkman. Like nobody did that. That was considered bizarro behavior. Nowadays, that's like Comic-Con has become like a place to meet cool people. And it was never like that when I was a kid. So this whole emergence of celebrity culture, I, in a way to me, has diverted a lot of aspects of work in show business away from doing the work and more towards using the work to try to gain celebrity. Including, you know, nerdy composers who come on podcasts trying to sound <laughs> smart and cool. You know what I mean? So I'm a hypocrite like everybody else. So what do I know? You know, I haven't I haven't quite yet reached the uh, the celebrity status, so I don't know if this will launch you yet. <laughs> <laughs> the main thing, though, is I want to keep working, and I feel like you know, talking about work may help. You know, what I really want to do is meet new filmmakers, you know, and meet young filmmakers who want the kind of music that I do. And a lot of people think, you know, the other thing is a lot of people think because I did a movie like Mission Impossible that I'm unavailable to do their film. And the truth is, if it's a good film, I want to work on it. And if it's got a great budget, awesome. And if it has a challenging budget, we'll figure out a solution. Well, and that makes sense too. And especially looking for those good projects because you aren't a machine. You're not just pumping out widgets. You want to be challenged and interested and inspired by, you know, the picture, the script or the characters or aspects of it too. So it makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I, I thought we'd get to this sooner, but... Right. <laughs> we will. Uh, Emily. Yeah. Yeah. So one of your, one of your uh, recent projects, I think it's your latest film, actually, is you scored the children's fantasy film, Emily and the Magical Journey. And it was actually really recently, probably within the last couple of days, that it was at least on the, the long list for the World Soundtrack Awards Public Choice. So that's exciting. I always feel conflicted because I know a lot of the composers on there. So I don't know. I never know who to vote for. Well, listen, I don't have any 
how do I put this? I rec Emily in the Magical Journey was a passion project by Marcus Ovnell, the writer and the director, Jenny Lampa, his the lead actress, his wife and producer, and me and everybody who worked on it. It was made in Sweden. It wasn't made by Disney in Hollywood. And it didn't have the resources that Disney has or Warner Brothers has. So everybody who worked on that film did it because they love it. And not to be a pessimist, I have no illusion that I have any kind of mechanism in place to promote that movie the way it would need to be promoted to actually win an award. But what's really lovely is an opportunity like the being on the long list gives me a chance to help spread the word and get the word of that movie out there. And I do think it's a movie that has something of value for anybody who puts in the time to watch it, especially, you know, families and people who are into that Harry Potter box of delights kind of childhood fantasy magical world kind of thing. And and look, I'll be honest, like, it's not a movie that I probably would have watched otherwise. Right, exactly. But then watching it, it was like, no, I mean, it's a, it's a really sweet movie. It does have good messages of empowering children. So seeing that sort of thing always makes me happy because I think sometimes it's really easy for those types of films to treat children like they're children rather than, like, appreciating that, no, a, like, a little kid is still capable of all sorts of complex thoughts and understandings and like you should address them like that as well. Well, and it's also very um, easy when you're in your 20s to sort of slag off something like Mary Poppins or Willy Wonka or Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, any of these kind of films where children are principal characters, E.T., you know, it's very easy to sort of sort of brush them off as like, mm, it's kid stuff. But in a weird way, you know, um, I was friends with a guy who was a magician of all things. And he said, children are the hardest people to do magic tricks for because they can filter out the bullshit. Excuse my French. You know what I mean? They don't fall for tricks. They see right through it. It's sort of like in a weird way, adults stop looking to play a trick on a kid. You really have to, you really have to know what you're doing and be, and, and it's almost like you have to be direct. And so much of magic is misdirection. So a children's movie, you really have to be, I think for an effective children's movie, a movie like Mary Poppins or a movie like uh, Narnia is another example. You know, Narnia, uh, Lord of the Rings is probably another example, although the movies are definitely skewed, I think, not so much towards little kids. You know, the movies are definitely aiming up to an older age, age bracket. Anyway, Emily, it's actually, it can be actually really tough to make a straightforward movie that conveys a clear message that kids will understand. And we worked, you know, I worked really hard on that to do that with the music. And I know Marcus Ovnell, the writer and director, did that with the film as well. And of course, you know, it was, it was frustrating because the film really was, the film wrapped up right as the world was changing in a very seismic way. Obviously, there are way more important things going on in the world than a movie. So I have a sense of perspective about that. But it was frustrating all the same to have had sort of a certain set of hopes and, and ambitions for that work and how it might be seen and how it might be released. And then the reality of what had to happen because of the way the world changed. But I'm glad that, you know, somebody who might not otherwise have watched it gave it a look and that it worked, that you weren't like, oh, this is dumb. <laughs> and, you know, that can happen. You know, I've worked on stuff where we really thought it was going to be great and then it just it wasn't. And, you know, I think this one is sort of the little film that could, in a way. Well, and it's, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, where in one sense, making a film, like let alone a successful film or a good film, just making a film in itself is almost a miracle just because of the amount of pieces going on. I think it's easy as an audience member to look back or to watch something and be like, oh, well, why did they make it like this? But it's like, right. there isn't the man behind the curtain pulling all the strings. There's just, there's so much going on. But a lot of the conversation too is kind of led up to this talking about some of the changing tastes in film music and trends and working under budgetary and time constraints and things like that. Because look, your, your score isn't, it's obviously not, you know, a 90 piece orchestra. Right. But at the same time, like, you still manage to get something that is orchestral and sounds organic and has a variety of themes and broader sonic palettes and motifs, too. So with all those what could be hindrances and what probably were, 
how did you end up at that final result of something that still feels like a robust, complex fantasy score? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. You know, there's two different camps, I suppose. There's two different ways I can think about an orchestral score that has to be realized electronically. One is what people who love film music and love orchestral scores and are intimately familiar with what a live orchestra sounds like are going to think of it. And unfortunately, that has to be second priority to my top priority, which is, am I giving the director what the director wants? And we had a plan in place to try and record this live at one point. But as the film reached the point in the schedule where that could happen, it became physically impossible to put that many people together in a space and record because of health, because of safety. And the decision was made that because of the way the world was, the, the situation that we found ourselves in, to do everything we could to make an electronic version as emotional and robust as possible. And I've spent a lot of time in my life doing very detailed studies of orchestral scores by John Williams, by Jerry Goldsmith, by Elfman, by Don Davis. I, I buy the Hal Leonard scores that they publish of John Williams concert suites. I buy the Omni scores that they publish of film scores. You know, uh, I buy tons of classical scores, Copeland, Stravinsky, Mahler. And I do mock-ups of these when I'm not working. It helps keep my skills up as a reading scores. It helps, it helps me study the orchestration and the composing. It helps me refine my ears as a mixer, helps me get familiar with my sample library. And what I do is I take the score and I play each instrument in by hand. And it also helps me relate to music as a performer. You know, if you look at what the flute is doing in the main title to Star Wars, you know, you remember, oh, wait, a flute player is sitting in a chair looking at a piece of paper with a bunch of dots on it. And to them, that's all the main title of Star Wars is. You know, it's... You know, it's not the theme. It's not that whole thing. They recognize they're a part of that mosaic. And it helps me to be able to look at that and remember that. So one thing that has been a benefit to me for that is I've really learned to the best of my ability how to take sampled orchestral instruments and get them to feel as orchestral as I can. And when I'm writing something original and I know or I suspect that it's probably not going to be able to be recorded live, I know how to, unfortunately, I'm, I have to have learned this, how to ease off from certain kind of orchestral gestures that are going to give away to anybody that it's phony. You know what I mean? That it's, that it's samples and not live. And at the end of the day, it's Marcus's movie. And if Marcus thinks that the matte painting in that shot looks real and it looks the way he wants it to look. And some other matte artist looks at it and goes, well, that's obviously a matte painting. How could they let, well, it's not your movie, dude. The movie can't be made trying to please every matte artist in the world. It has to be made to work for an audience. And I recognize, you know, I've seen some comments on, on the internet that the score to Emily is synth and therefore it's somehow invalid because it wasn't done with a live orchestra. And I recognize that there are fans who feel that way. There's nothing we could do about it. It was not within the budget. And even if it was within the budget, by the time we were ready to record a score, it was not within the realm of safety to do it live. And rather than wait two years or three years to finish the film, we made the decision that a synth version of the score, a sampled version of the score was, was accomplishing what Marcus wanted to accomplish with the film. That's another part of making films is hard. You know, if you want to, if you are a filmmaker and you want to make space movies, but you have an eye, you know, you have a, a high res, a high def camera, but you don't have the skill to do CGI. You've either got to find somebody who can do it or you've got to learn how to do it. And as you're learning how to do it, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to get better as you go along. Everybody did uh, the best they could within the circumstances. Now, by the way, that's not an apology either in the sense that we didn't put a disclaimer at the beginning of the film that says, hey, please forgive our movie, you know, because it was made during, you know, it was finished up during the beginning of the, of the pandemic. The audience pays just as much money and time to watch our movie as they do to watch Avatar or Star Wars or Avengers Endgame. So you don't pay more to see a more expensive movie and pay less to see a less expensive movie. It's all the same. And the audience has a right 
to expect the same amount of commitment from the people who made it. And I can promise you, we were 100% committed to making the film the best we could make it. Again, long answer to a short question, <laughs> but you know, my, my point being, I feel like I've done my homework and I've done a lot of study and a lot of practice to try to get sampled orchestras sound as real as possible so that the instruments at my disposal are not limiting my thinking or my ambition. I know some people that are maybe not quite that extreme in that camp, but very much have a strong preference towards orchestral and everything else can be a little lesser than that. Which, first off, I think is crazy because we've had, really we've had electronic music for 60, 70 years at this point. It might not have been particularly mainstream in the 50s and 60s, but like, it's not a new thing. Right. The other aspect, too, is it's one thing if you have like a really anachronistic synth score in a fantasy movie like um was like tangerine dreams legend score right things like that lady hawk yeah yeah exactly that's exactly it and like yeah those could be really jarring and i don't know how i feel about them but something that it's like it's sampled orchestral look that's the music landscape in a lot of ways you know it's impossible to have a massive orchestra all the time and sometimes that's what you do and Listen, yeah, I would have loved to do Emily with a full orchestra at Abbey Road the way I did Mission Impossible. Believe me, I wish we could have. I guess another way to look at it, and I hope I'm not offending anybody here, including the people who worked on it, but there's a particular point of view that a project like Stranger Things worked really hard to look and feel like an Amblin project from the 80s, like E.T. or Goonies or that Spielberg Amblin batteries not included kind of thing. And I've seen comments online that say that the music is the only part that didn't execute that the same way, that Spielberg never used synthesizer scores like that, and that it felt like they didn't have the money for an orchestral score, so they went this route instead. Now, I don't know if that's true, and I'm going to reveal a dirty secret here, which is I've never seen it. So I'm only reacting to what I've heard people say on the internet. I've actually still need to sit down and binge through all of Stranger Things. I haven't seen any of it yet. I've been too busy. And, I, and so I'm, I'm only using that as an example of things I've read online. When it came to Emily and the Magical Journey, our thought was, do we change what we want it to be because we don't have a live orchestra? Or do we do the best we can to create the feeling of a live orchestra for the audience, even if we don't actually have one? And we decided to go for that. And I understand, I listen, I recognize people who listen to it and go, it's not live. It really hurts it that it's not live. I don't agree with them in the sense that I don't think, I'm not embarrassed of it. You know what I mean? I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah, I wish it was live too. I'm sure Marcus wishes that he could have had 10,000 extras in his movie instead of you know the extras that he that he could get so that that army of old men in the movie which is about a dozen people you know i'm sure he would have loved to have that be a thousand people but he's not peter jackson he couldn't devote he couldn't build a visual effects studio like weta to create a virtual army and he couldn't get that many people to be in it similarly it's very it's it's one thing for me to say to a director i'm happy to work for you and work within the budget that you have but i cannot go to 80 musicians and say hey i'm doing this as a favor for this guy at a mate rate Will you also work for me at a mate rate? I just can't, you know, it's, it, the mechanism isn't in place there for that. I hope that came out right. Uh, you know, it's, we decided that we didn't want to change the vision of the piece based on what we had at our disposal. Instead, we wanted to use what we had at our disposal to try to realize the actual vision we had for it rather than compromise that because of budget. Well, and, and look, you, you touched on this a few minutes ago about you can't please every Matt artist. Exactly. Look, you can't please every film music fan, but like, and this is something that comes up again and again, a score is not for the film music fan. It's not for someone who wants to listen on Spotify. It's, first, it's for the director and it's for the film. And it works there, and I think it does a good job of further immersing the viewer in in the fantasy world of Fonitland. And right. I unfortunately have a a bad comparison because I watched... Emily in the middle of rewatching all the Lord of the Rings movies. Well, so. sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and not only that, but you know, Fonitland as a composer, I think my approach is more gentle than yeah. Howard Short. I mean, there's massive percussion and brass underscoring armies of orcs. I'm writing a, a much more personal, simple score 
or or maybe not simple but a gentle score about a young girl and a forest nymph and a gentle giant you know three characters but yeah you're right and and context the other thing i'll say is that the score in the context of the film is surrounded by dialogue and sound effects and we definitely decided that within the context of that sound design the music sounded orchestral enough that it didn't offend our sensibilities as viewers when we watched it obviously on its own whatever shortcomings it has being realized electronically rather than symphonically, acoustically, those shortcomings are hanging out for all to hear in a way that in the movie, they're masked a little bit. And you're right too. And in fact, even within the context of a movie, film music fans will listen to a score and say, well, why did Kramer do that? It's like, well, maybe Kramer didn't do that. Maybe McQuarrie told Kramer to do that. Or, you know, why did Williams do that? Well, yeah, maybe Spielberg took something Williams wrote for one thing and moved it to someplace else. You know what I mean? So much of what ends up in a score has nothing to do with the composer's ambition or ability. Well, yeah, I mean, a great example is, is Hans Zimmer's score to Black Rain by Ridley Scott. The music is all the same, but it's like Ridley Scott just chopped it up and put pieces wherever he wanted. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize it. People who are into film music understand you're often scoring the picture, but even though you're scoring the picture, it's every single note that you've scored isn't necessarily ending up in the film and it's not necessarily ending up where you intended either. So, right. you know, at, at the end of the day, going going back to the Lord of the Rings, Howard Shore comparison, it's such a stark contrast. You know, like when you first, the camera first pans over Isengard and there's just like fire and the world's being consumed and it's just this like evil pummeling sound. And then, yeah, you listen to Emily and it's like, there are darker moments where, you know, she's like facing her fears, but I mean, it's, it's two totally different worlds. And, and that was something that I think I had said about the score a while ago of, it was just refreshing having a gentler, softer fantasy score that while it has its themes, it doesn't have, you know, 15 different themes and it doesn't have punishing action cues and things like that. And it, I really like that aspect of it too. And I think it works Thank well. You. And I think then when you consider the film, it makes a lot more sense too. Because when I first heard it, I, I assumed it was a, a movie aimed for kids. Of course. Yeah. And, the, and the, the, the imagery on the cover. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, to a certain degree, compo- any kind of comparison is folly in that, you know, Lord of the Rings is conceived as a nine hour or 12 hour trilogy that spans a a year or more of time with dozens of characters and frankly kind of global ideas and seismic shifts in the events of this world middle earth emily is a little girl on a relatively short journey and about how her and her mom come to an emotional closure over the loss of a beloved of the girl's father and and her mother's husband it's a much smaller story i mean you wouldn't score the music for revenge of the sith when all the jedi are being killed you wouldn't use that music for the scene when obi-wan gets killed in episode four it's just not the same one is a sort of genocide uh, of an entire part of the culture and the other is one individual being killed in cold blood they're not the same moment and yeah the agenda of of faunet land is completely different uh you reminded me of something too which is like i once wrote a score for a short film and i had the film was maybe 14 minutes long and i had music for most of the film i'm a big believer in part of being a good composer is knowing when not to have music and so i was very strategic and i worked with the director in what moments should have music and shouldn't have music and then in the mix they took the first four or five minutes of music out of the movie. And I don't think what I do is any more sacred than what an actor does. And an actor will surrender their performance to the director. And the director edits and picks the takes that they want to pick and they cut the movie the way they think that needs to be cut. But an unfortunate result of their decision to take the first five minutes of music out is that when the music comes in, I think the music is too big. If I had known they were going to cut that out, I would have made that music much smaller. Because with four minutes of music to prep you for that moment, that music wasn't too big. But when you took that four minutes out, it was suddenly like it hits you over the head in a way that made me feel like people are going to say, Kramer has no freaking restraint, man. You just whack and, you know, and it wasn't that, you know, they changed the movie on me. Again, I'm not mad at them for doing it and they were happy with it. It was just my own 
I guess, insecurity, you know? Another example for an actor would be Al Pacino. Now, in the movie Heat, he gets a lot of grief from a lot of critics for sort of being so over the top in certain scenes of the movie. But the truth is, when he shot the movie, his character was a coke addict. And then Michael Mann cut all the coke addict part out of the story. So when, when Pacino's character is like on a coke high, you don't have that information anymore. You don't have that reason for his behavior. And you watch the film going, why is he playing it so big? And it was a similar kind of thing to that. So, so that's, that's actually really interesting because I didn't know that about Pacino's character. I'd heard like fan theories, I guess, but not that that was actually the case. I, I could be wrong. I mean, that's what I heard from years ago from people who would know. So, but I've always kept that in mind when I've watched the film. Yeah, now I want to do a rewatch of it because I haven't seen it in a few years and and like and have that in mind. But listen, Joe, I've I know I've already taken you a a bit over the time you had allotted. Oh geez, yeah. See, I get going when I can't stop. Well, I, was, I was gonna say, frankly, I think you know we could have kept talking about all this stuff for hours more, but um, we got to get moving, unfortunately. Thank you for having me. And you know, uh, when Old Man comes out, maybe we can meet again and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that'd be great. We'll uh, we'll just have to keep it under you know an hour and a half or so. Okay, very good. We've got all the backstory out of the way now. Yeah, exactly. We can jump right in. I'm so glad you could join me. Thanks again, and have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks, you too.